Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you with your relationship with food, exercise, and your body image. This week, I am chatting to registered nutritionist, intuitive eating counselor, and nutritional therapist, Isa Robinson. We discussed a lot, and I think today was a really informative episode. We talk about intuitive eating, and then we specifically talk about intuitive eating and eating disorders, and then we look more into eating disorders themselves and I just want to flag if that is a tough topic for you that you might want to give this episode a miss and if you do relate to anything you've heard in today's episode and you want to seek extra support we have included the details for Beat Charity in the show notes for you. But before we get into today's episode we are going to hear from this week's Train Happy Trooper of the Week. This week's train happy moment came in via WhatsApp. Hi Tally, my train happy moment is that I have wanted to do burlesque dancing for years but have never had the confidence to do it. I have been going to class now for seven weeks and even though I'm not the best dancer in the class, I absolutely love it and I'm even thinking of doing the show. This is an anonymous train happy moment but whoever this is, this is one of the coolest train happy moments for Train Happy Trooper we've ever had. I love this so much it just goes to show there is a form of movement for everyone there is something for everyone and you have to find what makes you feel good and if it's burlesque dancing all power to you I think that is awesome so thank you so much for sharing your train happy trooper of the week I wish I could say hello to the person it was but if you're listening we love it if you want to share your train happy moment you can send it in via text like this person or you can send us a voice note just send it to our WhatsApp 75 27537 And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Okay, enough from me. Let's get into this week's really important discussion with Isa Robinson. So for those who don't know you, you're a registered nutritionist. You specialize in eating disorders, but you're also a qualified intuitive eating counselor as well. Yeah. How did you get into that work? And how did you get into specializing in eating disorders? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually going to add one in there. Also a nutritional therapist. I feel like I've done a lot of uni in in, in my time and, and specializing in eating disorders and disordered eating. So yeah, I didn't have a great relationship with food growing up. Um, and I suppose around the time I went to university, it was like wellness landing in the UK. And I think the um, disordered eating part of me really loved that. I was like, oh, and and got really into it and actually started wellness blogging. And I always think it's quite important to own this part of my my story. Sometimes I'm 
given we know that the harms of clean eating, I'm always quite keen to like just pretend it didn't happen and, and gloss over it. But I think it's important that I I own that that is part. And, and actually, I was I was a wellness blogger for a while, and um, I can now see some of the harms that that might have caused. You know, promoting one way of eating and demonizing other ways of eating. Um, and I, I think it's important to like you know own that and put my hands up and if other people had a journey into it in a similar way, um, that you're not alone either. And I started to, as I was kind of in this kind of wellness scene and attending events, I started to really think, hang on a sec, this feels not right. And I remember at the time I was at uni and I'd kind of go out with my mates and then like arrive at you know, an acai bowl decorating workshop and I'd be really hungover. And, you know, everyone was telling me all the things they didn't eat and it just felt it felt really wrong on the inside and I actually went on to write my dissertation my undergrad dissertation on the clean eating movement and how it was a mask for eating disorders and disordered eating um I found Laura Thomas's work who has been a great um inspiration of mine and well found the intuitive eating literature and health at every size and it just snowballed from there really I thought shit, I better go back and stop preaching things I don't know about, go get myself a nutrition degree. And yeah, it's a real passion working, well, it's a real passion of mine to work with individuals. I love forming relationships. I love hearing their stories and how food and eating fits into their life and then helping them through food to almost move back into that. Um, so yeah, that's how I how I kind of fell into it. And I love nothing more than when someone I, I work with then tells me about maybe a party they went to or a hobby they got back into because they had the energy or they felt like they could. And I think food really enables us to do that. Um, sometimes it's not necessarily about the food, but when we have a great relationship with food, we can have more options and choices in our lives. Firstly, I completely relate to your story in so many ways. Like we probably came up at a similar time online and got fell into all similar, similar traps and have also, I would attribute Laura <laughs> Thomas as well to a lot of kind of signposting me in the right direction for sure. And I think it's so true what you're saying that, and I think this is the whole point of getting to a place of a peaceful relationship with food is that because that can take up so much headspace and so much time and energy, it really distracts and takes you away from the rest of your life and you're like a lot of other stuff gets put on hold because you can't control it it's you don't have the time for it you know I'm speaking from my own experience of you know sacrificing plans to make sure I could go to mm -hmm. the gym and yeah. you know getting up extra I used to get up extra early to make my like clean eating breakfasts and things and just all these things that I, you know, not going to my friends for a takeaway because that was scary to me and wasn't, you know, wasn't clean. So therefore only eating my own food or, or turning down invitations. And you really, your life becomes a lot smaller. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it, it takes out those options and choices. Um, and I, I think for me being a wellness blogger, like, I, I just felt, I, I remember feeling like a fake because... I was like living this university life that was actually quite normal and, and I made some green smoothies on the side and I remember being like, oh my God, like what if somebody found out that I had a gin and tonic? <laughs> it's a completely normal thing. Um, so yeah, it was it was funny, but it does. And actually just getting really obsessed with the appearance of food when, you know, not all meals have to be perfect mm. and 
um, the costs as well of these things and what that means in terms of who can be included or excluded from conversations around health or, or what cultures might be included and excluded. There's like, so many layers to yeah, it, aren't there? Yeah. There's, there's so, so many. So many layers. So like I said, you specialize in eating disorders and I do want to talk about that today, but I also want to just reintroduce the listeners to intuitive eating a little bit because I know that you've um, studied in, in that area and you were saying you use that lens with your clients, that framework with your clients as well. So how would you describe intuitive eating to people who may have never heard of it before? Yeah, great question and I love this one. So I would say intuitive eating is not eating intuitively. And it is, but it also isn't. And I think intuitive eating gets thrown around so much. And when I'm talking about intuitive eating, I'm talking about um, an evidence-based framework approach to eating um, that was coined by two amazing dietitians in the US called Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And it is really a approach to eating that is centered on self-care, um, connection to our bodies, and yeah, kind of fostering that healthy relationship with food. And it's it's centered on these 10 principles. So we have things like um, ditching the diet mentality, really actively and intentionally um, acknowledging diet culture and trying to move away from this kind of pervasive need to be controlling our food um, to change our body weight and shape. Um, it's about connecting to our interoceptive awareness. So that might be honoring hunger and fullness cues, but also embodied self-care. So how, you know, taking care of our sleep or our stress management can impact our relationship with food and our well-being. Um, it might be things like gentle nutrition and joyful movement. There's processes of making peace with food and pleasure and satisfaction in eating and coping with emotions with kindness. The last one I've missed is um, on sort of quieting down the food police. So that's that voice in your head that might say, you know, you're really good for eating this or you're bad for eating that or you shouldn't have eaten this. And so you sort of work through those 10 principles and it doesn't necessarily have to be in chronological order, but there are lots of layers again to intuitive eating. So somebody might do intuitive eating and have a nourishment a self-care plan. So they might have a more structured plan in the early stages as a stepping stone to being able to be more regular and consistent with their eating rather than just suddenly feeling like this, oh my God, I've woken up today and I'm an intuitive eater. So like, what on earth do I have? You know, that gets to be there. Um, gentle nutrition gets to be there. Mindful eating um, when not for intentional weight loss or kind of as this tool to eat less gets to be there. So it's a process and it's something that I don't think we ever reach a state of like ticking off our list. Like it's an action, it's it's a doing verb. Um, we practice intuitive eating every day rather than that sense of I'm just gonna tick it off. Um, I'm not a perfect intuitive eater. Um, I have very slapdash rushed meals sometimes or I'm like grabbing a snack between clients. Um, but that actually gets to be there because it's about kind of self-care. And as long as we're kind of taking care of our needs the best we can, then that that kind of fits in. And, and self-compassion is such an important component of that. And it's backed up by science. There's over 160 studies to show that intuitive eating um, can support 
you know, mental health, um, support body image, self-esteem, reduce binge eating episodes, can help prevent eating disorders. There's studies I think that have come out in diabetes and also in um, certain chronic health conditions where we might think, oh, well, maybe intuitive eating is okay for a, you know, quote unquote healthy person. But what happens if you have this? And actually, there's some really compelling studies coming out to show how supportive intuitive eating can be. I, I think perhaps even, even in cancer, but I don't have the exact studies to my fingertips. I'm sure I can send them to you for the show notes. So yeah, and I think it's really about the sense of reclaiming our intuition and kind of getting back to feeding ourselves from that place of care that diet culture often erodes and corrupts probably as as we transition into adolescence um but research shows even younger at the moment and it's about getting back to that even younger my goodness it does start so young doesn't it i mean seeing kids and yeah how they relate to food and how we already start to put in a few little rules around how they you know you've got to finish your plate you can't get down until you've eaten xyz or like that's naughty that's a good food like that's too much sugar and you notice like it all it does it start young, so doesn't early. it? There's a scary statistic I read today um, that is 34% of five-year-olds are already restricting their food intake. Mm-hmm. That's and I sad. think I know, and I think it's just so embedded and ingrained in our culture. You know, from the well-intentioned PE teacher that says, "Right, you've earned your lunch now," or the teacher that says they're being really good. You know. It's just everywhere. Mm. Um, Evelyn Tribbley likens diet culture to um, water to a fish. Mm. Like it's all around you, but you can't see it. Yeah. And then once you see it, it's really difficult to unsee. And I just, I really love that metaphor. Yes. And thinking of it as I would say, it's the sea we swim in. Mm-hmm. And to, to try and swim against it is to swim against the tide. And there's a lot of resistance there. And it's really tough. And like you say, we as adults, we can all think back to the early rules we learned around food. So if we think kids are starting with it now, we also, you know, as an adult have a lifetime of stuff to unpack and figure mm-hmm. out. And I'm sure that's what you do lots with clients, you know. For people who are wanting to start, you mentioned the kind of first port of call with intuitive eating and the framework is reject the diet mentality. How do people, what does that mean? How do people start with that? How do they begin to see diet culture for what it is and let go of it in their own life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think the first thing that I would hold, as you said, Tally, you know, it's like to to go against it is to swim against the tide. Like the first thing I hold is like, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for, you know, being open to considering unpacking that and just, you know, have compassion for yourself as, as you kind of lift the lid on it because it's a lot. And, you know, I think just being really gentle with ourselves as as we do that, it can look like so many different things. Um, You know, maybe one of the first things I might do is invite you to reflect on your own experiences of dieting. And maybe that wasn't even a diet like the Atkins diet per se. Maybe that was, oh, I just want to be a bit healthier Um, or I'm just going to cut out this and just really reflect on that. Like, how did it make you feel? How did it make you feel in your body? What were your energy levels like? Um, how did it kind of make you feel in the, in the essence of, of who you are? How did that align with your values? Um, did you reach your intended goal, whatever that was? If you did, for how long? Um, 
was it at the expense of anything else? Um, you know, your social life, like we were talking about, um, time that you might have enjoyed a meal with your kids or, you know, friends. So just really kind of reflecting on that and starting to unpack it a little bit. And I think the real power of, of intuitive eating is really de-experting our size, ourselves as the clinician and seeing, you know, the human being in front of us as the expert of, of their own experience. So rather than me telling someone your diet was really bad, actually, what did it feel like for you? Um, then it might be really kind of delving into that a little bit further. It might be thinking about what those earliest memories were in terms of when you felt that sense that maybe your body needed changing or your body wasn't right um, or food was talked about in a way um, that kind of took away that amazing kind of childhood naivety we have where where it's just so joyful and, and fun and carefree. Um, what do you remember? Was that something someone said to you? Uh, was it something that you watched on TV um, or read in a book? And like really getting under that. Um, and that can take some real time to unpack. Like what was that first earliest memory where um, diet culture kind of swept in? So it might be looking at that to kind of draw the sense of actually we weren't we weren't born like this. Like we weren't born with this sense of we have to lose weight or we have to look closer to the cultural ideal of beauty. That is something that we were taught from a very early age and we internalized. And so we can unlearn that. And we can consider the alternative, even when diet culture shouts really loud and we feel against the tide. Um, then we can start calling it out. Um, it is everywhere. Like I literally cannot get in my car and listen to the radio without a bloody noom advert coming on. Like I can't go to certain restaurants without being faced with the calories on menus. And so I imagine you all can't either. So it's everywhere. And so how do we start calling that out? And I think community is also really important there. Finding a group of people that are supportive of that journey or on that journey with you that you can really talk about that with and, and process that with because it is a lot. Um, and then I suppose once we've started with some of that, and, and I think there's so much more, then maybe we might be in a better space to consider some intentions of next steps. But first of all, maybe it's just that process of being gentle with ourselves as we get curious. Yeah, it is a getting curious process, isn't it? And going, you know, I did these things and I realized they don't serve me now, but they got me to a point. Um, and it's it's a lot of reflection, isn't it? It's a lot of, yeah, going over all the different phases, all the different moments. Um, and like you say, it can start when you're a kid and it's stuff you learn through your teens and especially I think as early and you know early adulthood and from then on we just pick up all this stuff and I think like you say the the key part is going you're not a bad person for doing those things mm -hmm. you were given bad information I often think that it's like I I, oft, I often also think I mean I think there's a lot of people working probably in nutrition and I think working in fitness that I think there are people with really good intentions and their hearts are really in a good place, but they got really bad information. And unfortunately, I think that um, doesn't serve people. You know, it can cause harm in some cases. Yeah, can I bring something else in? Yeah, please. I think this is 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 kind of interesting as well. So often when I I sit with my my clients, I call them human beings, and we kind of unpack this, and I think, okay, well, 
why is it that you might want to want to want to lose weight what would what would that bring you and we really unpack that and for so many individuals um and, and I want to be mindful here of, of fat phobia as well but it's a sense of well I want to feel successful and I want to feel valid and I want to feel appreciated and I want to feel proud and I want to feel accepted um it's it's such an emotional kind of experience that um one might be in in search of and that's because diet culture sells us this lie and um you know stereotypes people um depending on body weight and shape and this kind of lies if you follow these steps then you can look like this and if you look like this you will be a happier healthier more successful wonderful amazing person and you know life will be rainbows and smiles and you'll never have another bad day again and that is kind of, if we read between the lines of like a lot of like accounts on social media, for example, and we kind of get under it, even just like billboard ads for things like toothpaste, like that is the subtext. Um, and we are all impacted by that. And then there's this this other side as well, which is, um, and I, I want to acknowledge that um, I come to this work from a place of, of body privilege, but that we do live in a culture um, where there is weight stigma. And so for a lot of people as well, actually following a diet might be their way of, of finding safety, um, receiving appropriate medical care, um, being able to go to a family gathering without somebody making a comment about their weight. And I think that is also part and parcel of the work and dismantling that and calling it out and, um, you know, making sure that, that that is at the forefront. And I think that is a really important part of the work as well absolutely because like you say we know that <laughs> there's le levels of privilege right and being white thin cis all these things are going to mean that you gain more privilege so it's easier to be these things i think diet culture and kind of says well well we treat certain people a lot better than we treat others and therefore, if you want to be treated well, you've, you've got to look like this. And it's a real pressure and it's it's not fair. It's not right. So the biggest question that we have had about, uh, you know, having you in and and the biggest thing people always want to talk about is like, yeah, but if I do, if I'm intuitively eating or if I'm giving up my diets, I'm gaining weight. And I, I think there's several components to it. People don't like to gain weight because they don't feel good in their body because we're taught fatness is bad. People don't like to gain weight because we also associate it with health. And we think that to gain weight would be worsening our health. And so I wonder how you approach that with your clients who have those fears because, you know, I want to validate them. People and say those, those fears are real and valid and I get it. Once again, we get it. Um, but what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think um again, it's it's a really important question and I do not support any clients with intentional weight loss given the large body of literature we have that shows how that can be harmful and also because it perpetuates weight stigma. Um in the process of intuitive eating, weight might go up, it might go down, it might stay the same. It's not really about what happens with weight. Weight is not an outcome. Um, you know, well-being is, um, and and plenty of other other measures, including you know, um, interceptive awareness, and and there's a whole intuitive eating scale. 
Um, I like to hold that if we are eating in a way that is in the service of our well-being through the principles of intuitive eating and our weight goes up, that is probably where our weight is naturally supposed to be. And we can take great care of our well-being through health-endorsing behaviors like uh, maybe stopping smoking or engaging in chaining happy or just through actually a kind of self-talk or stress reduction like the impacts of chronic stress on the body Mm. are so left out of this conversation around health including stressing about food and the gym and and all the other things so we can improve our well-being independently of weight and that is likely where where our bodies are supposed to to be and how can we hold how uncomfortable that might be for us or what that brings up for us because of the way that our culture talks about weight and unpack that rather than put the blame on our bodies so we can be quote unquote healthy or we can engage in health endorsing behaviors right across the weight spectrum um obviously want to be mindful actually that being underweight is actually the the most harmful um and you know we have the extreme manifestation there with anorexia nervosa um where obviously it is absolutely essential that somebody goes through nutritional rehabilitation to help um rebuild the body and the brain um but we can engage in those behaviors right across the weight spectrum and that actually we should be looking at medical obs bloods heart rate blood pressure mental health measures, mood as an indication of well-being, not weight or BMI. And there we go, just dismantling the weight stigma again so that we can feel as though we are accepted in our culture and we can accept ourselves in our bodies regardless of where we fall. It's a big question, I think, and there's there's a lot to it. And that journey of that self-acceptance with your weight changing and kind of making peace with that and like letting it happen. I mean, I'm going to speak anecdotally here of my own experience of being probably a similar size as I am now when I was about 18, 19, going on diets, losing a lot of weight initially, and then that slowly creeping back and then me trying to lose it again and trying to, again, and trying to control my body and realizing like oh wait a second it really doesn't want to be here um and kind of slowly gaining weight um and then more recently with the pandemic gaining more weight I realized like I'm kind of a full circle moment I've really gone back to this natural size where my body sits and if I think about my family and my genetics and I'm yeah this is the this is the shape and and size of my body and yeah it's going to fluctuate a little bit but not as drastically as I thought it would. And like when I lost weight initially, I was well below where I am now. And that is just not where my body thrives. And if I think about that time in my life, I was like permanently cold, permanently cold. You know, my circulation wasn't great. I just know that, I just know now that me just being like a bit of a warmer person, like (laughs) that's a good thing. These are just certain (laughs) indications that have kind of happened with me. And I get sometimes comments where people are kind of like good for you you know good for you and I say this with like you know um I'm not particularly big I'm just kind of around about the average size of a person in the UK you know it's it shouldn't be radical to gain weight 
and yet it is and especially if you have kind of a visibility online and the way people talk about that and deal with it and you know I think for me the more I've learned about and I often say this to people and I'm going to plug another podcast that if you listen to Train Happy Podcast you should listen to Maintenance Phase (laughs) Podcast. Great podcast as well. It's an such an incredible podcast and what I love is particularly is they do real deep dives on BMI on weight and health and I always try and point my clients in the directions of those podcasts because it really helps unpack a lot of the beliefs we have around weight and health so if people are listening and they are like I'm not sure about this whole gaining weight and the health and blah 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 like check out maintenance phase for that because they really deep dive there but the more I've like listened to that and you know done a lot of work around intuitive eating intuitive movement read a lot of um around this topic listen to a ton of podcasts about this topic I realized that all the stuff I thought I could control that diet culture told me I could control is actually like it's about I'm in control of about 20% of stuff in in when it comes to my health and my body and in some ways that's scary but in other ways it's completely liberating because I'm like do you know what I don't need to stress and micromanage myself like I did for so long And I don't need to stress and micromanage my weight like I did for so long and my food and my exercise. And actually, if I trust myself, which I believe is at the core of intuitive eating and certainly at the core of intuitive movement is if I trust myself and my body, it will find the place where I need to be. Now, I, I think I also need to add in there that there's gonna be that's going to be slightly different for other people with chronic health conditions and you know various experiences with with that that I can't speak to but I think there's power and freedom in knowing that actually all the stuff yeah it's going to be okay like all the stuff we've we've so thought was so absolute and absolute fact and that we truly believe we had all that control like when you let go of it it's okay you think the world's going to end and then it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tally, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your experience of that. And what was really coming up for me when when you when you when you were talking is a sense of like coming back home to your body. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um coming back home to how you feel it's kind of meant to be like actually that sense of being embodied, you know, our culture tells us to self-objectify ourselves. And what I mean by that is our culture tells us to see ourselves as an ornament, looking from the from the kind of outside at something, a bit like if you were looking at a car. And what we do when when we kind of approach the world in a more embodied way and we kind of get back into our body is it's almost like we're kind of in that car and we're thinking about where that car can go and where that car can take us and what we can do and, and kind of feeling into the body and actually kind of knowing that this is our truest self. This is where where we're supposed to be. Um, and, and yeah, that was resonating. And also, isn't it funny, and, and I love having this conversation as well, that like literally from zero to maybe like 12, like it's so okay to gain weight. Like it's so normal. Like being a big girl now is like praised and it's like, oh my gosh. And the excitement of maybe new clothes or growing out your uniform. And then all of a sudden, and again, I want to acknowledge this isn't everyone's experience. All of a sudden it's like you kind of hit, well, I used to say 18, but now I'm going to take it even younger. And it's like, well, we'll stop mm, there, mm, mm. right? Because our culture glorifies the body of, of a prepubescent adolescent. And it's just like, wait, like your body is like this dynamic organism. Um, I've said like, your body is this ecosystem. Like it's doing billions of things all of the time. 
it's not supposed to just be fixed. And if we were more accepting to that process, um, you know, I don't wear the same clothes at age 28 that I wore when I was 26. Like, yeah. I've grown out of them and that is completely normal and fine just like when you go from the ages of of four to six let's say but our culture kind of makes it sound like you can just never grow anymore it's so messed up ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mum's The Word is a brand new parenting podcast hosted by me, Ashley James. Pregnancy, piles, and all the other problems that come with parenting, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Join me each week on my journey through motherhood as we celebrate the amazing highs as well as the lows. As it's my first time, we'll have celebrities, experts, and hopefully you guys too who'll help me figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. Find us wherever you got this podcast. I want to talk about eating disorders now and the risk factors for eating disorders and how people may um, look for telling signs of maybe in themselves or someone they love um, if they feel like they're developing a disordered relationship with food and seeing how that might escalate and like I said that does often start young Mm -hmm. sadly what what are the things to yeah, yeah what are the things to look out for Yeah, I think just to kind of like backtrack a little bit, I think really important to kind of hold that eating exists on a spectrum. And if we had normal or intuitive eating on one side, and then we might have this kind of whole gray space of sort of where normal eating floats into disordered eating and maybe disordered eating's near normal eating and then disordered eating might push up into um, into a kind of clinical eating disorder. Um, I really don't like labels, but an eating disorder would maybe be something that is like, has defined criteria in the sort of diagnostic manual. Um, Personally, I think that that's really harmful. You don't need to have a diagnosis to be struggling and suffering. You do not need a diagnosis to be worthy and deserving of help and support, but just in terms of like what, what what we're looking at there. And the eating disorders are biopsychosocial disorders. They are not a choice. Um, eating disorders are no one's fault. No one decides one day, hey, you know, I know what I'll do. I'll get, I'll get an eating disorder. It just doesn't work like that. Um, what we mean by biopsychosocial is that there tends to be a biological component. So we're saying that maybe eating disorders are 50% genetic. Um, there is a sociocultural component. So if we live in a culture where there are, you know, where so much of our self-worth is placed on our physical appearance, where we come up against filtered images, where 
you know, we're constantly told we need to be changing our bodies, um, that is going to have an impact. And then there's a psychological component. Um, so there might be certain traits, like maybe if somebody is a little bit more um, anxiety prone or um, perfectionistic, they might be potentially at higher risk. But we might also see other sorts of psychological traits there as we broaden out the conversation to include kind of binge eating disorder and bulimia as well, which are of course much more common than anorexia, although anorexia tends to be spoken about a lot more. It's like the headline eating disorder, yeah. isn't it? But we forget that there's other, and there's also orthorexia in there as well. Yeah, yeah. And and actually the frustrating thing about orthorexia is it's not actually, um, you know, it's not actually in, in the DSM. So if somebody maybe went to the GP, they'd be like, well, orthorexia doesn't exist when actually that person is, is, is really struggling. Um, and even when we take something like binge eating disorder, which is the most common eating disorder, um, someone is likely to be on a wait list for far longer for that. Um, they might also be living in a larger body, which means they're facing other sorts of um, potential challenges um, to accessing healthcare. Um, and yeah, it was only put in the most recent diagnostic manual, which is crazy considering it's, it's been around for so long. But what are some of the signs that you can look out for? I, I guess they are really gonna vary and there's a lot of nuance, like, you know, a sign could, so for example, like one of the signs might be somebody developing a really new keen interest in like healthy eating or exercise. And often that might be something we really outwardly praise. And it may be that it is, you know, doing something that feels really joyful and and fun. Um, but it could also be the sign of something a little bit more sinister. Um, when we think about our sort of physical signs, it might be actually feeling really cold, like you mentioned. It might be abnormalities showing up on blood tests. It might not be. Often with eating disorders, we can tend to see normal labs, uh, which again can be something that feels really invalidating to people. Um, but the body is going to decompensate in every other area before it impacts your bloods to maintain homeostasis. So even if bloods come back normal, it doesn't mean that, again, you're not worthy and deserving of help or that you're not that you're not struggling. Um, it might be things like brittle hair and nails it might be kind of really dry skin it might be feeling weak or fatigued it might be kind of that feeling of kind of um, low blood sugar like heart palpitations and feeling really kind of anxious and irritable like being a bit um hangry um it can often be feeling really low um and feeling down you know when we aren't eating properly, we aren't able to make some of our neurotransmitters like serotonin and melatonin, sleep is one to go. Um, but also like the body effectively thinks it's like in a famine, like it's it's actually almost getting that sense like this might be the end. Um, so that's something that we might look out for. Thoughts about food, oh my goodness, an obsession with maybe cookbooks and just thinking about food all the time, even thinking about what we might not be eating, that can be something. Um, in maybe a, a bulimia or binge eating disorder, it might be kind of foods disappearing or feeling really out of control, feeling like you can't stop eating even when you want to. Um, it might be noticing that someone's disappearing off to the bathroom after meals. Um, gosh, there's so many different things that, that we might need to be on the lookout. And I think in ourselves, just that feeling that, that something's a little bit not, not right. Um, I think in my own experience of food restriction, 
I just think life became really gray. Like I just, I felt really disembodied, like almost like I wasn't really in my body and drifting and everything was like sepia. Um, I did not feel like myself. It was like the color and the energy just like drained out of me. And I think I knew that. I, I think I had that sense. Um, yeah, so so just some of the things. And um, if any of that resonated with you or, or you're thinking about somebody that you love or care about, I really encourage you to um, reach out for some support. You massively deserve it or to, to check in with your loved ones because, yeah, the sooner that we intervene and what we do know about eating disorders is the earlier someone receives help, the better the prognosis. And I think a lot of times with eating disorders, we associate them with someone looking visibly thin. And I think it's really important to say as well, and I'm sure <laughs> you've got plenty to say that, People can be at all weights with an eating disorder and often it gets missed because we're waiting to hit this low weight um, and therefore people are only sadly getting sicker because they're not able to access the treatment sooner that they deserve, they need and deserve. Um, and yeah, I mean, once again. <laughs> most most people with eating disorders are not thin, whatever that means. The most people with eating disorders are not in an emaciated body. Um, and I think that's really important to hold in mind, you know, eating disorders don't have a look. Um, I think they've traditionally been associated with sort of an emaciated white young female. And that's a load of BS. They exist in all cultures, um, all ethnicities, all races, um, all sexualities, genders, um, sometimes in, in increased numbers. Um, and so it's really important that we don't stereotype and that we're really on checking in with people, particularly for those that maybe work in schools or um, in community groups with with people and, and young people to be able to really check in with them and spot the signs independently from just looking at someone's physical appearance. Being more aware of that means that people, like I say, don't wait till they're quote sick enough mm -hmm. when that's not really a thing. Yeah. You know, everyone's deserving of support. And I think if there's one thing we drive home today, it's that. I've had a lot of requests to talk specifically about binge eating. So I wanted to spend maybe a little bit more time talking about that today. Um, you mentioned some of the signs around binge eating. Can you go into maybe a little bit more and just talk and maybe just for those who may identify with some of those traits that what they can do to begin healing that relationship with food? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, again, when we think about that disordered eating moving into an, an eating disorder, the binge eating will have a, a clearly defined criteria as per the DSM. But let's just kind of scale that back and think often what we see is um, eating maybe in a discrete period of time. So in a kind of one hour or 30 minutes, an amount that is definitely more than most people would eat in a similar time frame and that's often accompanied by other factors such as kind of eating beyond the point of comfortable fullness or until physically sick um feeling completely out of control and unable to stop um and and other sorts of factors associated with that and often what i'm seeing in clinical practice is this sense of people coming thinking oh my gosh i just i just binge or um 
I'm I'm really out of control and I'm I'm binging for emotional reasons and that's definitely a component but one of the kind of really major drivers for binging is restricting Mm. Um, when we kind of like restrict our food intake um, and that might look like all sorts of things that could be you know um, not eating all day and then kind of um, maybe having a binge in the evening or it could just look like just eating really healthy things but nothing that I really want um or all low-fat products like, yeah like the label like a a, a labeling of foods that are good and bad yeah. and being like well i've only ate, eaten the good foods and then feeling out of control around the, the quote bad foods so we think about physical um restriction so it's like the physical restriction of food like not having enough but then there's also like psychological restriction right when we really want something we really want that ice cream and we're thinking about that ice cream oh, i really want that ice cream but I should have the apple. And so we have the apple and the apple doesn't really hit the spot. And so we're like, oh God, what did I do now? I'll have a chocolate covered rice cake, I have a chocolate covered rice cake. Oh, that didn't really hit the spot either. So I'll have another apple and then I'm actually gonna have five biscuits and blah, 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 and then have the ice cream. So there's kind of that kind of, of um, restriction as well. Um, and then there can be kind of restriction of, of, of different food groups. Um, so it might not be that, you know, over the day, somebody is necessarily like in a calorie deficit, didn't eat enough. Um, but it might be that they're not giving themselves permission to enjoy the foods that their mind, body and soul is is asking for. So our perception, I find, of like what is enough food is, is often just maybe not, particularly um, for our busy everyday lives. So we're just on the go all of the time or in that kind of frantic frantic space working busy jobs getting from here to there picking the kids up dropping this off um so that's kind of one of the first places that I really kind of um will start like actually really starting to make sure that we feel nourished and maybe that is starting with kind of nourishment of self-care and having regular eating intervals throughout the day, eating every two to four hours because our blood sugars are turning over every two to four hours, making sure we've got a balance of food and food groups, particularly our kind of carbohydrate foods, our kind of fat-rich foods, because we know that fat is going to make, uh, fat-rich foods are going to um, help us to be a little bit more satiated. They provide a lot more staying power. So often I will invite when someone feels ready Let's get off these low fat, no fat products and let's actually help ourselves to feel satiated and nourished with this amazing macronutrient and our protein rich foods as well. And it might be that we start with things that feel a little bit more manageable and tolerable and and less triggering and then build in the things that feel really kind of satisfying and um, enjoyable first, although, sorry, after that, and we we can bring that in sooner. Um, And what I tend to, to find is that once we are actually meeting our physiological needs for food, even if there are still these loss of control binge eating episodes, they tend to come down quite a bit just because we're not starving. Mm. Um, And uh, what we kind of see is if we're kind of restricting and then there's an emotional trigger that comes in, that is like the perfect storm for a binge because we're, we're kind of, triggered in in that emotional sense and we're starving so if we can make sure that we're really well nourished not only are we likely to be feeling actually much more capacity for things that 
kind of come into our emotional cup just because when we're undernourished, we have a tendency to be more anxious, to be more low, to be more agitated. So not only do we just find that things just, we've got more capacity for them, we're also not starving. And so our loss of control eating episode might be a lot be a lot less. And, and that helps people, I think, to kind of build confidence and then, you know, perhaps working with a psychologist or a therapist to to look at some of the more emotional components as a certified intuitive eating counselor we can go very sort of low level and and look at a few things but um i really advocate where possible and again it's, it's a great privilege isn't it um to work with a psychologist at the same time so that you can look at both those elements but for anyone that is kind of listening to this and the main giveaway would just be eat and eat enough and eat regularly and eat what feels good and include a range of food and food groups in there, including foods which contain my favorite vitamin, vitamin P for pleasure. I haven't had binge eating, but once again, I just want to give my own anecdotal example of there were certain foods that I just didn't allow in the house. Pre-intuitive eating, like granola was one of them. Um, Things like pints of ice cream, I felt like I because I only, because I labeled them as a bad food and I only gave myself a certain window of time to be allowed to eat them, usually at a weekend, I felt that if I did have these things, especially ice cream, if I did have that, then I had to eat it all Mm. because then come the next day or Monday, then they were back off limits again because they weren't, you know, they were naughty foods. So I, I, I only had this small window of time to eat them and then I would completely ignore my fullness and just eat and eat and eat until I've, you know, I, I got to enjoy that thing. And one of the most powerful things around intuitive eating is I forget that I have things in my cupboards. I've got half-eaten bars of chocolate. I've got half-eaten tubs of ice cream. I've got all these things that I could never have envisioned having before I all I always knew the whole inventory of my kitchen cupboards and my fridge and freezer like I knew every single thing and now when I see stuff and I'm like oh yeah I've got that oh yeah I did buy that didn't I to me that's a real marker of how far I've come with my relationship with food because I'm like oh this doesn't consume me as much as it did before and it doesn't control my every thought and instead I'm able to enjoy the amount I actually want to have rather than feel like, you know, there's a compulsion to eat this food that I have to because there's only this small time frame, And that was huge for me. Unconditional permission to eat was huge for amazing. me. Amazing. Yeah, such an amazing antidote and such a powerful principle. And I think something that I, I just love to bring back to that is I think kind of going back to this sense of how normalized restriction is. Like I, in my experience, felt, as though I did have some issue, but it definitely wasn't to do with the fact that I wasn't eating enough. And it was terrible at university with like nut butters and granola. And I would, you know, eat like whole boxes. But but no, it's nothing to do with restriction because I eat three meals a day and I have snacks. And as soon as I started having enough food, oh my goodness, I didn't need to like have a whole box of granola in one sitting. Um, and in a similar way now like the granolas take it or or leave it but I think it is that sense like if anyone's uh, kind of in that place of oh but like I do have three meals and snacks and I do just I'm not saying that you don't I'm not saying this is everyone but just a gentle invitation to really just 
have that kind of compassionate self-inquiry in a non-judgmental way like is there enough is there does that that way of eating does it make you feel happy does it include a range of different foods and food groups are there certain conditions on it like you know maybe only ice cream on the weekends or you know only this if I'm out with friends like what might come up um, certain times I'm allowed to eat or not eat that may actually mean that there is this kind of undercurrent of restriction even if you know you're not on a a diet per se or or sort of restricting meals I've spoken about this a million times on this podcast that it feels like anyway but I really identify with everything you said about I never in my mind when I was at my most disordered I was never on a diet but I was eating clean and I was super health conscious and I was I exhibited a lot of the signs of orthorexia and I really I was eating enough I didn't restrict actually like meals or snacks I was always in fact I was always eating but I was only eating a certain type of food and I was only eating foods I deemed acceptable or good or healthy or the right ingredients or whatever. So I completely relate to that. And I also completely relate to the fact that I attribute my need for that relationship with food at the time to be due to me not knowing how to emotionally cope with grief I was feeling at that point in my life that I still feel now, but not having the tools to actually deal with a, a really big the loss of my dad and then also put myself in a really stressful environment of drama school where once again I did not have the emotional tools to cope with a really intense really intense training so I relate to both those things and I and I don't know I'd love to hear your professional opinion on this because I kind of see eating disorders get us to a point where they can help us cope and survive really difficult traumatic stuff but they get to a point when then they no longer serve us and but they they do get us through to a certain point, right? But I feel that when we are able to address those things and address our relationship with food and body and exercise, because I think, you know, exercise can be a part of people's eating disorders as well. There can be the purging element of exercise. There can be the, the compulsion and all of that stuff. Rigidity, it really plays into it as well. That that's like the visible part of the iceberg. And then the bit underneath the water is all the emotional stuff that kind of underpins it and that this is how we've coped with this stuff and that when you work on that stuff and when people work with you then they they're able to clear more headspace to then dig deeper with their therapist dig deeper into that emotional part and really excavate those deeper core reasons because I think for everyone we often think it's the food it's the food it's the food and I often and I kind of think I think this is actually a sign yes it's the food and it's your body image and there's probably a red flag there going and there's something else going on there too it's quite interesting if it's okay for me to reflect on my own personal experience I um had an eating disorder in my early teens and I I think up until I sought out some really good therapy during lockdown, thought it was just the desire to be small. Mm. And I just, when and anyone, a psychiatrist, anyone early on, and, and I was I was very lucky, I had very early intervention. I was just like, no, it's just, I just want to be smaller. And it was actually only in kind of coming to therapy for, for many other reasons during lockdown that actually I was able to, to understand my the, the origins of my own um, eating disorder. 
Um, and I think that you're right, you know, eating disorders serve a function and a purpose and they are a means for which we can cope. They might help us regulate our nervous system. They might help us numb out. They might help us feel in control, um, provide us with something that we're good at, appear more acceptable to society because often many behaviors are glorified. Um, and when I'm working with individuals again, I often let them know that I'm really curious to get to know their eating disorder a little bit and that I really want to want to learn about it and I want it to be present in our sessions. I want to hear from it on certain things. And I say, you know, I'm I'm here for you. I'm, maybe your eating disorder is not going to like me a lot of the time <laughs> and that's okay because I'm here for you. But I am interested in getting to know it and I do understand that even though, you know, there are things, you know, like we say, it's a coping mechanism, but at the expense of what, you know, at the cost of what for you, but that there has been a time, if not now, or still ongoing, where that eating disorder has has maybe been, um, you know, a, a log on a treacherous river that someone could cling on to when there was nothing else. And I do think it's important to acknowledge that and often there can be grief work in, in grieving the loss of an eating disorder as well. Um, and kind of that that letting go and again, coming back to oneself. So yeah, I think, I think it's important to touch on that. And, you know, again, I think it just really goes to show that it's not some kind of choice for attention or some kind of superficial thing that there's so much else going on there. I want to um, end each episode like I do with everyone about asking what's been a recent train happy moment for you ah oh, i've been so excited for this so i i'm i'm trying not to be too rehearsed but this has been my uh train happy thing since lockdown but uh my fiance and i got really into like swimming like wild swimming mm. so um we have been kind of going to various places in the uk to have a very chilly and brief plunge in nature and it is just so exhilarating and um, we've done it in Cornwall we've done it in like Oxfordshire we've done it in Essex um and we've been going to some of the Lido's as well in London and that is just something electrifying about it and again I feel like it's another really um amazing milestone in like how far we can come on our own journey because I identify with what you said about that sense of like always feeling cold like mm. I could not have done this um many years ago and now I'm also a warm person um and, and don't feel that anymore um and it's just amazing and yeah we love doing it together and often there's like a farmer's market nearby or we might go to like a bakery afterwards and like make a morning of it and um, yeah, there's just there's just something about being in a river where there's like sheep on the other side and a duck floats by. And yeah, that's my my train happy moment. I love that. I think there's a lot to be said for like the mental health benefits of that for sure, as well as the physical benefits, because connecting with nature, I really feel like really feel like it helps you connect with yourself. Yeah. Yeah, there's really amazing research that shows how time spent in nature can be really positive for body image. Mm. Um and I think maybe we, feel, we we kind of feel that like actually we are part of nature and there's no mirrors or yeah. filters. And um, you're very we're embodied. Small and significant amongst huge big trees that've been there for like hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe. 
Like it feels really, and you know, I always heard someone say like, you know, trees come in like all different shapes and sizes. No one looks at like how many different varieties of trees there are and go, no, you should all be this one thin twiggy size. It's like, actually there's tall trees and there's wide trees and there's short little twiggy ones and everyone, all the trees are They all get to be there. (laughs) They They all get to be there. They do. Um, Isa, this has been an absolute pleasure and I'm sure people are going to want to find you, maybe work with you. Where should people look? Where can people like follow your work and potentially work with you? Yeah, and um, Tally, thank you so much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, people can find me on Instagram at Isa Robinson underscore nutrition. Um, I also have a website, um, isarobinsonnutrition.co.uk, where we've got kind of blog posts. Um, There's the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, (laughs) which is on a pause at the moment um, with various different other things going on in life. But I'm actually really keen to to get that back up and running. Um, If you'd like to work with me, uh, you can find out some more details on our website and get in touch through a form there or email me directly at isa isa at isa robinson nutrition.co.uk i feel like i'm like on the radio (laughs) trying to cram it all in before before the time comes out um but yeah and and i'd I'd love to hear from from anyone really appreciate hearing people's lived experiences um hearing people's journeys hearing maybe how we can be better um how we can do better as well to make sure that we're um practicing in in kind of inclusive ways and, and being respectful to all lived experiences Oh, I think people will be really lucky to work with you. So, so thanks. But that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please do let us know on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. And we do want to hear from you. We want your questions. We want to hear your train happy moments. And we'd love to feature you as Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So remember, you can get in touch with us via our WhatsApp. It is 07599927537. And whatever podcast platform you're choosing to listen to us on, please rate and review. It really helps the show and it really helps spread the train a happy message. And that is it for this week. I'll be back with a brand new episode for you next Monday. See you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.